gathered together from the cosmic reaches of the universe here in this great hall of justice. Superheroes have to be around other superheroes. You know what I mean? That's the Hall of Justice is more about them just commiserating about their powers and less about them like actually fighting crime. So what uh what is this place anyway? Is this some type of fancy DMV? Are you kidding? It's the Hall of Justice. Seth Everett is the best there is at what he does, bub. And what he does is the Hall of Justice podcast. Go, go, go with a smile. Welcome back to the Hall of Justice. Thank you so much for your support of the podcast. Make sure when you go to the iTunes page or the Spotify page, you say nice things about the podcast because that's how the Relative Platform Markets Podcast. If you say nice things, then I get told nice things, and then all of a sudden the sponsors find out, then they say nice things. It's all a win for everyone. Uh, two weeks ago, we had an unbelievable conversation with the executive producer of every Batman movie, uh, Michael Uslan, uh, a guy who I've now gotten to know a little bit, and uh, I consider... Uh, the ultimate resource when it comes to Batman. Uh, we talked and I attempted to do an episode where we covered uh, everything in the Batman universe and that we barely scratched the surface. If you listen back to episode 338, we covered the Tim Burton franchise, the Joel Schumacher franchise, the animated series, but then it was like an hour and 10 minutes and we were like, we didn't even touch on any of the other stuff. So through the kindness of his heart and because we never talked about anything that he's actually doing in the 21st century, Michael Uslan is back with us today. Michael, thanks so much for doing this. The uh, The feedback was wonderful from the last episode. Again, I had a blast. So I'm looking forward to this as much as I was looking forward to that one. Well, I got to tell you, Seth, same thing as far as I'm concerned. There's a lot of times I get interviewed by people in the mainstream press um, who really don't know too much about Batman, the comic book lore, um, or anything besides, you know, one or two films. So to have a chance to geek out with a fellow fanboy, um, you know, at, at this point, it, it's just a lot of fun. So I, re fun. I really appreciate it. Yeah, it was fun. And you let me ask, you know, off the beaten path questions. Some of them were really cool and some of them weren't. And it was just uh, it was it was really fun. I hope we can do that again today. Let's talk about what you're working on now. Let's start with Stan Lee. Uh, you were friends with Stan Lee. Uh, tell us about that to begin with. Uh, there's a new documentary that I really enjoyed on Disney Plus. Uh, it's like 90 minutes about Stan Lee, and it's all in his words. So. It's not the most journalistic documentary, but some documentaries are journalism and some aren't. Uh, I like the Stan Lee documentary. What's your relationship with him? I met Stan for the first time when I was 11 years old. Um, Fantastic Four number nine had just come out. And me and my friend Bobby pestered my mom to death. And when we had off from school, it was a Tuesday. Um, we wanted to go into New York City and see the Baxter building in person. Uh, because in FF number nine, they were evicted from the Baxter building. They had gone bankrupt. The whole thing was about the Baxter building. 
So she drives us into New York. You know, I, I grew up just outside of Asbury Park, New Jersey. And we're walking around Midtown. Nobody knows where this is. She asks a cop. Nobody knows. So she goes into this thing. I don't know if your listeners ever heard of this. It's called a phone booth. And um, <laughs> in you this said phone that with booth, such a straight face. <laughs> in this phone bo- booth was this big yellow book. And she looks up the number of Marvel comics. And she called Marvel. And Stan Lee's back then secretary, Flo right, uh, Steinberg, right, yep. yeah, Flo Steinberg got the call. This was the sweetest, most incredible, bright, inc- amazing woman. She's in the documentary. She's in the Stan Lee documentary. As well she should be. And uh, we'll talk about that one later. Yeah. Um, and Flo says, oh, Mrs. Uslin, I'm so sorry, but, but the Baxter building was created by Stan and Jack and it's not real. And my mother said, oh my God, these kids are gonna be so disappointed. Well, can I bring them up to Marvel to go on the Marvel tour? I already took them on the DC Tuesday afternoon tour. And Flo says, oh, Mrs. Uslin, I'm so sorry, but we're so much smaller than a DC. We don't have any tours. And then leave it to my mom. Oh no, we drove all the way from New Jersey. <laughs> Like you'd think it was so, Iowa. <laughs> yeah, right. So Flo said, all right, why don't you bring the boys up? We're at 655 Madison Avenue and I'll take them around. Uh-huh. We went up there and I had brought with me my oldest comic book, All Winners, number 18. And um, she took us around and introduced us to Stan, introduced us to Jack. They signed my comic book. That was it for me. Stan Lee was my idol. Um, years later, when I was almost 20, I started teaching the world's first college accredited course on comic books right. at Indiana University, which was a life changing thing. And Stan was one of the first people to call me and say, what you're doing is great for the whole comic book industry. How can I help you? Right. At that moment, just about age 20, Stan became my mentor. Ultimately, my friend. Then we became creative associates. We worked together on different projects for both animation and um, in comic books, I brought Stan over to DC Comics 20 years ago. The, the Just Imagine series. Just right? Imagine, to reinvent all the DC heroes the way he would have created them at Marvel. And um, and, and it was great. And uh, my son David and I were two of the uh, producers of his memorial at Grauman's Chinese Theater in Hollywood when he passed. But wow. one, thing, one thing that David and I did with Stan was through the Smithsonian Institution, the three of us taught a course that I devised for them called Rise of the Superheroes. This is still being offered on edX and and it's under Smithsonian Institution, Rise of the Superheroes. It's a 17 lesson course with lectures by me, David and Stan on the whole history of comics and superheroes and it's free. It is absolutely free. We've had hundreds of thousands of students from all over the world sign up for this course and if you go to edX and look for it, uh, feel free to sign up. And uh, I think you'll really, really enjoy that. Since it's and a that podcast, part- spell, spell edX. Uh, EDX. Oh, EDX. Okay, good. Yep. Um, so I, th- I think you'll all really enjoy that. But uh, that really sort of sums up my relationship with Stan. So what are you doing now? Uh, Stan has passed, but you're working on a project now involving yeah. Stan. I am curating for the Comic-Con Museum and Cartoon Studios 
um, a major exhibition on the life and legacy of Stan Lee, which will open July 18th, which is the night before preview night at San Diego Comic-Con. It is going to open up at the Comic-Con Museum in Balboa Park in San Diego. And it's going to run for at least six months. And it is going to be historic. It is going to be amazing. Um, I reached out to major auction houses, private collectors. We have original artwork and comic books and memorabilia that I didn't even know still existed. Mm -hmm. um, and when you walk into this exhibition, the entire opening section is devoted to Stan's co-creators of the Marvel Universe. It's devoted to Jack Kirby, Steve Ditko, Don Heck, Gene Colan, Johnny Ramita, Dick Ayers, uh, Jim Starankos, just so many people who co-created what has come to be known as the Marvel Universe. And uh, it is really an homage to, uh, to everybody who built it from the ground up. We're very excited about it. Um, we've got original paintings by Rob Pryor, one of the most amazing uh, painters today, Greg Hildebrand of the Brothers Hildebrand, uh, in addition to historic artwork from the early Fantastic Fours, early Spider-Man, and we have from the 1940s, the earliest existing artwork that we know of um, with material written by Stan Lee, as well as comic books like Captain America number three, which was the first time he ever used the pen name Stan Lee. So needless to say, I'm yeah, very excited. In the excited documentary, about... he explains the whole thing about how he was embarrassed to be working on comics. They they show this party that he went to, and he didn't want to tell people that he was writing comic books, so he was telling people that he was writing children's literature. And eventually, the idea of being called Stan Lee was because he didn't want his name associated with comic books, so he just used his first name and split it. Yeah, yeah. I'm not the biggest fan of that documentary. Um, but, um, I wish it had been entitled Stanley in his own words. Well, that, um, right. That, that's exactly what it is. It, it, if you know, if you, if you understand the context of what it is, don't expect it to be the comprehensive, uh, Marvel history documentary. It's not journalistically sound. It's just like when people talk about, uh, the last dance, the Michael Jordan documentary, which is, it, it it's great. Uh, uh, it's great fan service. You see Michael Jordan in his prime. Michael Jordan had full uh, creative uh, control over it. So anything that was said was positive for Michael Jordan. It's not, it's not a it's not a documentary in the sense that it's not journalistically accurate. It's it's a, it's a piece. This Stanley and, and thing. If you want to see old footage of of Marvel stuff and you want to hear Stan Lee's voice. That's what this documentary is. Absolutely. And our exhibition is we roll out the red carpet for Stan and all of the co-creators. So I get to use my uh, my standard line for the podcast. We've done over 300 episodes of this show. Uh, if you're listening to this show the week it's released, uh, that exhibit comes out next week in San Diego. Uh, if you're listening to this in the future, do me a favor. Send me a note. Let me know how the flying car is. <laughs> Well, that's that's what I'm doing on the Stan Lee side of things. Uh, on the DC side of things, um, I am. You'll find me featured in a new three-part documentary uh, called "Superpowered: The DC Comics Story" uh, by a phenomenal documentarian, Leslie Iwerks, uh, who recently did the Warner Brothers 100th anniversary documentary as well. 
And uh, although this, this hasn't gotten out yet, I wrote a history and introduction for the Batman Golden Age Omnibus, Volume 10, which will oh. be out in uh, September. And that wraps up the Golden Age version of Batman. Oh, very and cool. as as the next issues move into the Silver Age. So I, I wrote a whole very detailed history of, uh, of of that stage of Batman's life in comics. And uh, I was very happy with that to do that. Um, on uh, Super Powered is coming out on uh, the new Max. Correct. Yes. Correct. And I think it's July 20th. It, it comes out. And again, 10 minutes and a shot of whiskey. I'll come up with a better name for an app than Max. But. <laughs> Oh, come on now. I had two different uncles named Max. So, you know, give me well, a that's, break. That, that goes back to an old line. Um, the, uh, my old uh, broadcast partner, uh, when I worked for Major League Baseball, Daryl Hamilton, uh, we would go to Detroit. And in Detroit, they have a mass transit system. And it's called the People Mover. Ten minutes, shot of whiskey. I'll come up with a better name than People Mover. <laughs> Tube, subway, <laughs> you know. Call it anything you want, just not people mover. It, it's a dumb name for a thing. And when Max came out, I just said, that's what you came out. I don't understand why they don't call it Warner Brothers. Like Warner Brothers. I, that's, to me, that's what you'd want to call it. That you'd want you'd want to showcase this iconic name. Warner Brothers. That's that's your name. I I, I didn't understand HBO Max. I don't understand Max. Ours is not to reason why. That's right. That's right. <laughs> uh, you're also working on something with Broadway. Yes. Like the most exciting thing of all. Um, and Stan always told me, get in the plug when you can. So here it comes. Um, I wrote my memoir. Uh, it's called The Boy Who Loved Batman. Yeah, we touched on and, that last week, uh, the last time we did the episode. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Which tells the story of how a kid in my 20s, I bought the rights to Batman from DC Comics and my 10 year human endurance contest to bring a dark and serious Batman to fruition on the silver screen. So um, that book, which is available on Amazon and Barnes and Noble dot com, I, I, I had the chance to do the audio book version to, to narrate that, which was a real oh, fun cool. project for me. Yeah, it's out on Audible Books. And then um, that book has done very, very well. So they asked me to do a sequel to the memoir, which came out last March. It's called Batman's Batman. And you and I talked on the last show about how I got that moniker, um, yep. what the circumstances were. Yep. And then I did the audible book version for that as well. Awesome. Well, what's happened is that the Nederlander Organization of New York which the Nederlander and the Schuberts are the two big Broadway producers and own virtually all the theaters on Broadway and theaters around the world. Um, the Nederlanders own, for example, the Pantages Theater in Los Angeles. And um, they said that they were looking for um, plays to, to produce plays that would be inspirational, entertaining, and thematically important to the world today. And they, they said that we we want to make The Boy Who Lo who Loved Batman into a Broadway play. That's and that is incredible. happening as we speak. Um, it is moving like a bullet. Um, not quite ready to make any announcements, that, but they'll be coming later in this year. And uh, it is just so exciting to me on so many levels. I mean, for God's sake, my parents are going to be represented 
on the Broadway stage. That's, um, that's wild. So, you know, it's that, just that, that's wild. Um, and then I will extend the formal invitation when when that is ready to come to fruition, when we have a release date or when we have uh, the first set of previews or whenever we deem appropriate. You'll come back and we'll talk about that 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 play. That will awesome. We'll, 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 we'll totally we'll because we'll have covered the um, again. I'll throw some some Yiddish here. We'll we'll have covered the Mishigash. We'll have we'll have covered <laughs> all the all, all all the the main Batman stuff. But we can focus on on the play and and everything like that. Um, you could do uh, you could have the song uh, that they do in Batman Beyond. Uh, that the, the song that uh, when 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 Bruce Wayne, it's the episode with uh, uh, Rachel Ghoul, um, when Talia comes in and tries to get Bruce, he, tr- he tries to when when Rachel Ghoul tries to go into Bruce Wayne's old body, but they try to make him younger with the Lazarus Pit, and they go to this Broadway play, and Kevin Conroy sings this Batman song, <laughs> and when Kevin Conroy came on the podcast. Uh, he says one of the greatest lines, you know, they in, in Batman Beyond, they always say, used to say shway. That was that was their cool. You know, everything was shway. And Kevin Conroy just says, this is schwarbage. <laughs> Kevin, sure was one, of my, song. <laughs> one of my favorite people of all time. Kevin, what Conroy. what a great guy. <laughs> the greatest. Um, all right. Uh, when we last uh, left you at the end of last episode batman and robin was a flop when we talked about all the reasons why uh george clooney uh the the batman and uh you know chris o'donnell and 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 everything and the franchise kind of uh goes dormant you said something and and we kind of moved on from it you said it turns out to be the saving grace because batman and robin through a lot of tumult got the Christopher Nolan Dark Knight trilogy made. Take me from the, the low point of, all right, you knew Batman and Robin sucked. I mean, we we know each other well enough. It's not a great movie. We know that that happens. How do we get to Batman begins? There was new management at the studio that came in. And I get a call one day from a guy I did not know. And so he said, your rights, your rights stay. I, I didn't mean to cut you off, but before you start, your rights don't change. Like you own Correct. the rights. You own the rights. The thing you bought in 1979, you have it no matter what. Correct. And it is something that um, Warner Brothers now can do whatever they want, but not without honoring my contract. Correct. So uh, new management came in and I, I get this call and I say, look, I've been here three weeks and my job is to resuscitate the Batman franchise. And he said, I spent three weeks reading the files. He says, you know, we have like three cabinets filled with your <laughs> letters, telexes. Um, it, this was all before email. And I said, I can imagine and he said, well, he said, you know, everything you said came true. And I said, well, I'm not the kind of guy who tells you I told you so. Right. And they said, all right, we are going to do this in a dark and serious way. We're going to make this right. 
We're about to have our first creative session on it. Uh, we need you to come out to LA. So I went out to LA with my head of development at the time. Um, and we went into this meeting at Warner and there's a bunch of executives in the, in the room. And what year the is oh man. Um, well, cause Batman and Robin is 98. Batman so Begins is 2005, so there's a seven-year gap, but yeah, X-Men comes I... out, Spider-Man comes out. Like there's, there's great superhero movies coming out. I'm not great about remembering years, but okay. um, if you go to kind of find out when the management change okay. happened, you know, we, we can identify it that way. So we went to this meeting, and um, <laughs> to the best of my recollection, it, it went something like... Um, well, we have a major problem for starters because um, uh, with the Joker, with Batman versus the Joker, how do we go, wait a minute? I go, you can't have the Joker in the first movie. I said, if you do that right out of the starting gate, it's going to be compared to Jack Nicholson. Right. And you're setting up a lose-lose situation. You, you, you've got to save Joker for the second movie. And they said, well, who they said, well, you know, we we look through the list of Batman villains, and the only one really left is the Mad Hatter. So I said, the Mad Hatter is a grade D Batman villain. Right. And they said, well, who would you use? And I said, uh, Raj Al Ghul. And um, and by the way, the reason that you pronounce it different than I do, because my pronunciation series. came from my good friend Denny O'Neill. Back in the 70s, when he created Raj Al Ghul, that was how he told me it was pronounced. Now, I know in media and other ways, it's been Raj Al Ghul, it's been this Al Ghul. Well, the Batman, the animated series. They yeah. called it Raj. Yeah. So I want to say I respect that, and I don't call right. it wrong. I just go with what Denny originally told me. So they looked at me, and it was like, Ra, Ra, Ghul, what, what did you just say? And I said, Raj Al Ghul. And they go, well, wait a minute. Nobody in this room ever heard of this guy. How could you claim that he's one of the great Batman villains? I said, because you were all still locked into the 1960s TV show. Ghoul was created in the 70s after all this was done. And they go, well, who is he? So I began to spin the tale of the League of Assassins and Talia and everything. And they go, oh, my God, could you write this up for us? I said, happy to do it. Uh, in the span of, I think it was maximum three days, I sent them a 25, 27, I forget how many pages uh, treatment it was, and, um, and and was very happy to do so, very happy to do so. Uh, I sent them copies of comic books. Uh, I think I sent them actually the Dollar Giant comic book that had reprinted oh. the, uh, the, the original story. So anyway... Um, eventually Chris Nolan comes in and I've got to hand it to the management at that time of Warner Brothers to give your most valuable franchise asset to an independent young director. Give them the keys to the, to the kingdom was a ballsy move that many studios would not have made. And that has made all the difference as far as I'm concerned.
People often ask me, how do I keep motivated and uh, how do I keep my spirits up? Well, things are, are moving forward instead of backwards. I think every neuroscientist in the world, if you lined them all up and asked them the same question, can the spinal cord be repaired, they'd say yes. That is the voice of Christopher Reeve. Whether this is your first time ever hearing the Hall of Justice or you've listened to over 300 of the episodes that we've put together since this podcast was created in 2015, the superhero genre owes a great deal to the role Christopher Reed played as Superman. Partnering with the Christopher and Dana Reeve Foundation is an honor for the Hall of Justice podcast. In 1995... The accomplished actor was paralyzed after being thrown from a horse during an equestrian competition. After his accident, he lobbied for spinal injury research, and that led the man who once played Superman to the foundation that bears his name. Here's the origin story from the foundation's CEO, Maggie Goldberg. So when Christopher Reeve was injured in 1995, he was looking at all of the other organizations in the country and really around the world. Um, and there weren't that many that were searching for cures and treatments for spinal cord injury. And what he loved about our organization at the time, which was the American Paralysis Association, is that we were funding research. We, we Our mission and sort of theme was considered a laboratory without walls. We wanted to fund the best research no matter where it was in the world. And one of the other parts of the mission was bringing researchers together and to share information, which wasn't really something that was done at the time. Researchers you know, can be very competitive. They hold their information close to the best. So I think that's what really drew him um, most to this organization. The Christopher and Dana Reeve Foundation is dedicated to curing spinal cord injury by advancing innovative research and improving the quality of life for individuals and families impacted by paralysis. We are on the cusp of a new era in spinal cord injury, where real cures are within reach. The Reeve Foundation serves as a catalyst at this critical moment, uniting academics, scientists, and industry in a new model of collaboration. The Christopher and Dana Reeve Foundation is really the only national paralysis foundation focused on a dual mission. Today's care, tomorrow's cure. We are searching for cures and treatments for spinal cord injury, paralysis caused by spinal cord injury, but we also provide services and programs for people impacted by all types of mobility impairments. So when you think about paralysis, it's not just spinal cord injury, it's stroke, ALS, MS, um, in addition to spinal cord injury. And we're here to really help people navigate their journey through paralysis, whether or not they were diagnosed or impacted from you know, yesterday, 10, 20, 30, 40, 50 years ago. This partnership is not the only tie Christopher Reeve has had with this podcast, even though it was created 11 years after his passing in 2004. In the 1970s at Juilliard, Christopher Reeve was good friends with Kevin Conroy. Little did they know then that while Christopher Reeve would be the embodiment of Superman, Kevin Conroy would be known as the voice of Batman. And Kevin was kind enough to come on this podcast during his illustrious career five times. Tragically, Dana Reeve passed away in 2006, and the foundation was renamed 
the Christopher and Dana Reeve Foundation. I asked CEO Maggie Goldberg how listeners of the Hall of Justice podcast can participate and help the Christopher and Dana Reeve Foundation. There are many ways to get involved. The easiest is to go to our website at ChristopherReeve.org. You can also follow us on social media. Our handle is at Reeve Foundation. Um, there, you could become an advocate. You can run a marathon and join Team Reeve. You can become a fundraiser. You can help us spread the word. You can become a volunteer. All of that is outlined at ChristopherReeve.org, and we invite you to become part of our family. In the weeks and months to come, we are going to organize some walks and some activities that can raise money for the Christopher and Dana Reeve Foundation. But for now, if you are hearing this for the first time, the fifth time, or the tenth time, go to ChristopherReeve.org. Get the newsletter and find resources in your area. I'd like to think that if we had this podcast in the time that Christopher Reeve was alive, he'd want to be a part of it. He'd want to be a part of the show, and he'd want us to spread the word about this foundation. Thanks to you, the listeners, we are going to do that. I think in order to accomplish something, somebody has to go out there and put out a vision that makes it seem more real, more tangible. Explain your role a little bit going forward. If they say we want to hand the keys to the castle to Christopher Nolan, can you say no? No. So if they wanted to say we want Joel Schumacher to do version three, can you say no to that? No, but I can sit down with Joel and express my concerns or my feelings or my thoughts. So you can get Um, the meeting that everybody else can. So uh, let, let me give you my take on sure. what happened when Chris came in. Now, in in my career, there have been about, and, and my career is now nearing the 48-year mark. There have been, I think, a total now of seven people that I was fortunate enough to be involved in projects with whom I consider to be geniuses. And I never used the term lightly. Clearly, Tim Burton and the big idea. Clearly, Anton First, our designer of Gotham City, the Batmobile, the whole look of those pictures. Number three, and and I don't mean it in descending order, I'm talking chronological order, is Christopher Nolan. There's no question about that. None. What Chris did at the end of the day was to actually elevate what a comic book movie is and could be. And when you walked out of one of his Batman movies, you no longer had to just say, oh, gee, that was a great comic book movie. You can say that was a great film. And um, and, we'll, and we'll talk about why it should have at least been nominated for Best Picture, if not win. But uh, Dark, Dark Knight. Knight. You're but talking that, about the Dark Knight. About Dark Knight. But that's a whole aside. So here's the way I see it. I think Chris's mission was, number one, to restore the darkness and dignity to Batman on screen. How is he going to do it? It was the same objective that Tim Burton had. But now, years later, Chris was coming at it 180 degrees differently. Oh, He he wanted to convince the world that Gotham City was real, 
So unlike Tim, he was not going to build it five square city blocks on the back lot of Pinewood. He needed to find a city that would become Gotham and feel real. And he, he in my estimation, he knew that if he had it in, set in New York, the second you saw Times Square or the Empire State Building, it's, oh, that's New York City, and it breaks your suspension of disbelief. Correct. But by choosing Chicago, where if you take like two iconic buildings out of the landscape there, people around the world can't even identify the city. And you got Lower Wacker Drive and some other things that are pretty interesting. So he was able to accomplish the first part of that mission by shooting in Chicago. Number two, he had to attempt to convince people that Bruce Wayne could be real today. He could be a real young person, probably with post-traumatic stress syndrome, who was on a journey of self-discovery and make people believe in Bruce Wayne that you could have somebody like this today who could put on armor and conceivably go out and do stuff like this. And that was incredible. Number three, he had to try to convince everybody that the Joker was real. Now, <clears throat> when Tim Burton was doing the movies, this was 88, the movie was being shot in, into early 89. Right, sure. The world at that time and the world of comic books was very black and white. It was good versus evil. And the Joker was the clown prince of crime. And that's what Nicholson portrayed. But now when Chris came into it, the entire world had changed post 9-11. It was a world that was gray. It was order versus chaos. And, the, and who was the Joker now in the comics? He was a homicidal maniac, just like he was in Batman number one. So it was a complete reversal. How do you take that now and make audiences believe it? So in a performance crafted by Heath Ledger and himself, he and, he, he and Heath made the world believe that this guy could be a modern day terrorist, somebody who places no value whatsoever on human life, not man, woman, child, or his own. And chaos, he's, in, he's the ultimate agent of chaos. I think the line was some people just want to see the world burn. And we believed it. And he was scary. And that was an amazing accomplishment. And I always say maybe the toughest, toughest challenge he had was if you're going to make this real, how do you make audiences everywhere believe that all the tech, all the gimmicks could really be real? And in his brilliance, he hired Morgan Freeman to tell you it was real. Yeah. And when Morgan Freeman says something's true, by God, it's true. <laughs> and, and that was that was utterly amazing to me. And and I, I always say, by the way, don't just go out and watch The Dark Knight out of the trilogy. No, no, no. Um, I, I, you keep going to The Dark Knight. Batman Begins stands alone. It, it's a it's a remarkable film. I, I I wonder they call it the Dark Knight trilogy. Was that did Warner Brothers have to title it with the name Batman? No, I heard something about animation once. Uh, there was a movie. It was called uh, Superman Batman Apocalypse. Right. Yeah. And it's a Supergirl story. And but I had heard I, I you know, I had heard from research that I had done and we'd done podcasts on it that uh, Warner Brothers Animation said, well, you're putting super the words Superman and Batman in the title. Did the name Batman have to be in the title of Batman Begins? Could it have been 
you know, the Dark Knight begins or, or, or something to separate it from the first four movies. It could have been, but let's go back to the context of the times. That would have, it was earth shaking enough when the word Batman was not in the title of the Dark Knight. Okay. I mean, it shook everybody to the core. I don't know, I, I, to this day, I'm not sure how Warner Brothers marketing let that happen. That was I mean, it's great that it did. Um, so with Batman Begins, when they were attempting to rebuild an audience, to, to try to rebuild the trust in the fans in the audience, um, I think it would have been inconceivable not to have the word Batman in the title of that first one as you're trying to rebuild a franchise. But then with the success of Batman Begins, um, which, by the way, many people didn't just rush to the theater to see it necessarily after having been burned before, but my God, by the time it hit home video, um, they were running out of DVDs left and right. They had to keep going back on emergency presses to get that, that out there. And then when Dark Knight came out, and won all the accolades and got all the attention, then everybody was flocking back to the video stores to get a copy of Batman Begins and expand their knowledge of what was happening here, what Chris Nolan was building. And, and my my contention remains, this is the last point I'll make. Sure, sure. To me, Chris only made one movie in three acts. Right. It is one of the most beautifully structured movies you can see. Um, every character arc is beautifully done. Every setup has a payoff. Every payoff has a setup. I think structurally it, it is magnificent. The amazing things about Batman Begins, first of all, Cillian Murphy, I just, just unbelievable. I mean, he's in, uh, he's in Peaky Blinders and he, he, I can't get that out of my brain, but um, he's scary as, as hell as the scarecrow in in Batman Begins. What I love about Batman Begins, and I remember seeing it the first time, you don't know that Liam Neeson is Ra's al Ghul. The first time, you don't know. Yeah, um, right. And, that and reveal, by the way, Murphy was a contender. He was a contender for the role of uh, Bruce Wayne. Oh, I'm sure. Yeah, I'm, I'm sure. Um, and that, that's the other thing I wanted to ask you. What, what, as someone who had to be convinced about Michael Keaton and was because Michael Keaton gave a remarkable performance and I, I, I they're, they're not comparable they're not apples to apples it's 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 no. totally different um tell me about your thought on christian bale and what do you make of christian bale and the way he spoke a lot of people say that he overcompensated the voice when he had the, the when he had the costume on all right for, first of all i'm just going to say this categorically not as a producer everybody this is not wearing my producer hat this is now wearing only my fanboy hat. Okay. And this is nothing uh, uh, toward anybody except in my fanboy brain, the voice of Batman is Kevin Conroy. Right. That's in my brain. Anyway, I understand. Uh, and of course I understand that if you're, if you're doing a real version of Batman and Bruce Wayne, he, he can't go out and, and use a similar voice. No, no. Um, His, Christian Bale's Bruce Gordon Wayne is perfect. His Batman, yeah, he, 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 it's over the top. He, he, he's he got to mask his voice, right. right? So that's a creative choice that a filmmaker and actors get to make. Yep. And again, what's my job? My job is to be the cheerleader. I get it. Seriously. That, that is, that is, is, is I want to support everybody who's working on a film or is working on a Batman film 
anything I can do to be helpful, to be supportive, that's what I want to do. And um, especially when you're working with somebody who's an outright genius, like a Nolan or a Burton or a Phillips, um, that, that's really what you need to do. The Dark Knight, I just would love to know if you could transport yourself as executive producer. I don't know if you saw like a rough cut of it or if you were at the premiere of it. I, I don't know when you saw it, but I remember walking out of the theater, seeing The Dark Knight. First of all, I remember my wife was pregnant. And yeah, that, that, yes, because it came out in July and my first child was born in August. And I was scared that it was too loud. <laughs> I thought we were damaging the kid. Um, I remember walking out of the dark night going, holy, holy moly. Like, what did I just see? Like, I, I, I remember being blown away because very rarely, very rarely in this genre are you blown away. I'll give you a recent example. When Luke Skywalker shows up in the Mandalorian, that's a holy shit moment. That's a what? What? That's a holy shit moment. When Heath Ledger puts that makeup on the first time and you see his demonic performance. That's a holy shit. moment. Absolutely. In, in cinema. For, for, but for this genre. I don't know how I, I, that's what I'm saying. Like, what is your perspective when you saw that? And you're the guy who said Adam West and Cesar Romero can't exist. Like, that's not Batman. You need to have that. And then you saw that. It's like they took your argument and they tripled you. And like they said, oh, well, we'll see this and raise you X. That's what it feels like to me. That is a great way to describe it. That's an awesome way to describe it. Um, I, and I couldn't agree with you more. Um, it, it was a moment where you, 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 you just felt like the franchise went to the mountaintop. And that Christian Bale nailed Bruce Wayne for all generations of Batman fans uh, at that moment in time. And people all over the world who never read a comic book <clears throat> could, could appreciate this yeah. and watch it again as, as a great film. And, and I want to make one point. Over the years, I've, I've done a lot of lecturing at uh, universities, um, Comic-Cons, business conferences, and so often during Q&A, there'll be somebody who will come up and say, in the dark night, the thing that affected me more than anything was the scene on the two ships when the people on board a boat had to make a moral decision, a moral choice was presented. Do you press this button and blow up the other boat in order to save your own hide or do you not? What happens when you're presented with a moral choice and the choices are bad and worse? And the people keep telling me in the darkness of that movie theater, in a freaking comic book movie, a superhero movie, they quietly have to confront their, themselves and think, what would I do in that situation? 
What would my moral choice be? And it's an earth-shaking, unnerving moment for people that sticks with them forever. And when a, a lot of times when people approach me and tell me about this, they do so with tears in their eyes. That's a that's a comic book movie that had that kind of thematic impact on people. It's amazing. The United States Library of Congress selected it for preservation in the National Film Registry in 2020. Uh, the Dark Knight is just uh, it's something. It, it it's something. And you know, it's not the movie. Uh, I will say this: it's not a movie that you can casually have it on in the background. Right. You know, like and it, it's a shame that it was not honored. You, you know, people just press a button. You know, you press a button. You just have something on in the background. Uh, my, I, I, I always update people on the podcast. Lately, it's the, uh, the, uh, the food that built America. Right. That's a sh- that it's a fine show. I can put it on the background, and while I'm writing something or if I'm editing something, I can have it on in the background, and it's mindless. It's it it it's it's mindless, and it's not reality show dribble. You know what I'm saying? You put the dark night on you're not doing anything for two hours you're 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 transfixed that's that's a long way to say that and yeah the trilogy is an amazing piece of work uh but i was going to say spielberg himself said you know this picture clearly should have been nominated for best picture it was one of the great mistakes of the academy uh roger deakin said it should it should have won best cinematography um, and it, the list goes on and on. But at that moment in time, at that Academy, um, the idea of nominating a comic book movie as best picture or voting for it as best picture was just was unheard. You of. Know, it was just at that time was unheard of. Let's touch on the uh, the Dark Knight Rises. Um, it's a remarkable sequel. Um, there's a couple of questions I have from it. Uh, first of all, Tom Hardy's performance is remarkable. Um, yes, it is. It's not an apples to apples comparison to Heath Ledger, but it's a remarkable performance. What he does uh, with it. And I heard a great interview uh, with Pedro Pascal because they asked Pedro Pascal, I think it was at a Comic-Con, you know, because he was on a stage and they asked him about what it's like to act with a mask on all the time. And he said he watched The Dark Knight Rises and he watched Tom Hardy. And that was how you know, the inflection, the voice inflection and the way he sounded creepy and just the whole thing. Um, Tom Hardy makes that movie. Uh, Marion Cotillard is also brilliant, but Tom Hardy is just something else. Yeah, you know, it was funny at the premiere uh, in New York, the New York Public Library was transformed into Wayne Manor that night and got a kick out of seeing all these people rushing and surrounding the stars of the movie uh, all night long. And Tom Hardy, who had already slimmed down, by the way, is like at a high top having hors d'oeuvres and like virtually nobody even knew <laughs> who That's he right. was. I mean, at, at that right. moment in time, it, it, he had had the mask, he would bulk up. I mean, everything. It was it was just kind of ironic. Oh. Um, yeah, I you know, one of the great things for me was admiring Chris Nolan with his aversion to CGI and try, and wanting to do things real and make yeah. it feel real, whether it's having a stuntman literally standing on top of a spire overlooking a city and it being a real guy, 
or actually flipping a semi on Lower Wacker Drive or actually having a vehicle ram through barriers and fall down below on, I think it was Grand Avenue in, uh, in, in downtown LA. It, it, it was amazing. And that was what made the whole thing really add up and feel so real to everybody. Can I ask two uh, fanboy questions? Maybe. I wanted you to answer them as fanboy, not as an executive producer. Uh, for a movie grounded in realism, uh, his back heals really fast. It's the marvels of modern day medicine. Okay. That's fine. <laughs> that, that's fine. Uh, how do you feel as a fanboy of them twisting uh, the Robin story? You know, with with you know, with the de- police detective, you, you know, with with Joseph Gordon-Levitt, uh, and they find out his legal first name is Robin, but he's a police cop. It's just it's 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 a totally different story. Now, the one thing about the Dark Knight trilogy is it really is in a really unique way, very loyal to the source material. It's steeped in realism, yet it all comes from comic books. What's your thought on the Robin storyline? Basically, Nolan saying, that didn't fit what I was planning, so I'm going to write my own Robin story. The ending just of, hint at my own Robin story. The ending of the Dark Knight trilogy gave me the chills. It gives me the chills okay. to this day. Um, I have always been a subscriber to the Stan Lee theory of sidekicks. Stan used to tell me, I hate sidekicks. He goes, it doesn't make any sense. He said, when we're trying, when we were trying to do with Marvel in the sixties and, and make it feel kind of real to people that, um, and change it from the old cardboard stereotypes. Um, he said, it's one of the reasons when we brought back Captain America, we did not bring back Bucky. He he said, "Who the hell is really going to believe?" They made billions of dollars afterwards about him, but yes, <laughs> right, <laughs> yes, down the road. Uh, he said, "But who's going to believe an adult guy palling yeah. around with a thirteen-year-old, fourteen-year-old kid who should be home in bed getting his rest, doing his homework? Except now he's being exposed to murder, danger, and torture. You know, uh, all night long." He goes, "It just doesn't work." Um, and I was never a fan of sidekicks when I was, you know, even when I was a little kid, Jerry Robinson and Bill Finger created Robin um, because they thought, and the DC hierarchy at the time thought that young kids, and remember back then the primary readers were eight to 12 year old boys, right. would be able to identify with Robin more than they could identify with Batman. It was never true. We all, every one of us from as young as we were, we identified with Batman. And when we were on the playground and playing Batman and Robin, it was the youngest kid or the scrawniest kid that got stuck playing Robin because everybody else wanted to either be Batman or a villain. And 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 that has always has always been an issue. So with this, you got to look at what Christopher Nolan's theme was or one of his themes in the, uh, the Dark Knight Rises and throughout the trilogy. But it was Captain Dark Knight Rises and it was in your face. Batman is not simply one man. It's not simply one person. It's not simply Bruce Wayne. He is a symbol. That was stressed to the nth degree. And because of that, 
Of course, it makes perfect sense in the real world created by Christopher Nolan that at the end, it was continuing the symbol and you watched the new Dark Knight Rises um, into black. Mm -hmm. Oh my God, that was powerful. That was really powerful for me. And uh, and again, I'm commenting as my fanboy self. No, I asked and you answered. No, that that's fine. It, look, that's what that's the fun of this podcast. <laughs> you know, when in 2012 when that movie came out, we didn't have the show, <laughs> so we didn't we didn't review this movie. You know, it's, <laughs> it's the uh, it, the only two things the only two things I ever thought about uh, the, that 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 trilogy. That trilogy is a masterclass. Um, and if if the if the Burton film, you know, was the accomplishment, and you you know you even said you know that was your life's work, but then it became your life, uh, you know, the Dark Knight trilogy, um, just took took that character to another stratosphere, because nope. there have been multiple trilogies for Spider Man, there have been seventy six X Men movies, there's been a bunch of Superman movies, you know, there's all kinds of different things. But there have been two separate times where Batman was on top of the cinematic world. And that's pretty remarkable. It is remarkable. And again, I, I just I couldn't stress enough. All the credit goes to Chris Nolan and Emma. Uh, she is one of the great producers uh, and a great human being. Um, it, it, it is just so great to then watch his career and his work uh, as it has evolved over the years. And for me in, uh, in 2023, the top of my list of movies I can't wait to see is Oppenheimer. So, um, you know, I, I still am amazed at what this man is capable of doing as a director. I guess this is more of a fanboy question, but uh, shortly after the dark Knight rises, uh, Christopher Nolan's star is uh, white hot. And he, along with Zack Snyder, uh, create Man of Steel. And the one thing I'll say, and I'm just speaking for me, not for you, uh, while the tone that they had reached for Batman uh, was spot on, there seemed to be this theme that you know, dark and brooding uh, had to be with everything. And it's it, it's it, it's it's an it's I don't have the majority opinion. I would say I have fifty percent of the opinion. It's very divided when it comes to Man of Steel and Zack Snyder came on Hall of Justice, and we talked about how divided everybody is when it comes to this. I just thought that Man of Steel, the tone was missed. It 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 doesn't have to be Christopher Reeve, but it doesn't have to be that either. What's your thought on? how the Dark Knight trilogy influenced Man of Steel. I will simply respond to that this way, <clears throat> generally. I have had conversations many, many times over the years since 1989 with studio execs, with agents, with talent, with directors, with screenwriters, with showrunners, the list goes on and on. And my point was always you have to adhere to the integrity of a character 
you have to look at what the creators intended. In the case of Batman, it is authentic and organic and essential to the character, as far as I'm concerned, that Batman is dark. And it's a world of darkness fostered by his primal origin. Now, when that becomes a huge success in Hollywood, the trend becomes, well, that's successful, so let's everybody jump on that bandwagon. And my contention is you are misunderstanding the success of Batman. It's because we were all authentic to the integrity of the character, not because we were simply dark. So you don't have to do Dark Green Lantern. You don't have to do Dark Ant-Man. You don't have to do any of that stuff because in the world of Hollywood, Seth, with the way they will jump on a bandwagon and try to imitate what they think is successful, they would be producing Casper the Unfriendly Ghost right now. <laughs> and and let me just use I'd as an example. <laughs> That would be a horror film. <laughs> we may have, this may be an idea. Um, That's right. <laughs> um, I was at a meeting in China with my son, David, and we were with a very, very powerful company over there uh, whose intention was to join forces with us to begin um, financing and um, making comic book superhero types of movies. Okay. And in China, they are very, very data oriented. There's a lot less of the P.T. Barnum, you know, off the uh -huh. seat of your pants showmanship. It's sure. strict. It's often strictly about data numbers. So we were jet lagged by the time we got there and they had these plush, big, giant seats for us. And they said, please stay. We have a presentation we want to make. And these two young people got up. And they had several different screens. And they said, we have spent the last two years analyzing all comic book movies because we want anything we do to be successful. And we were astounded at the results, but we have them now and they are concrete. And then you look at the screens and it's... And it's a bunch of dots and charts and graphs. And they said, um, we have found that in 91.8% of comic book superhero movies, there are skyscrapers. So we know that in order to make a successful superhero movie, we will have to have skyscrapers. <laughs> so I, I started to raise my hand and, and my son David said, wait. <laughs> then came the next battery of screens. We have found that in the case of 96.3% that somewhere in their uniforms or apparatus is the color blue. So if we wanna have successful superhero movies, we need to try to have costumes that are generally blue. And then my hand went up, I said, I think you're missing the point here. But that kind of comes back to, does every superhero have to be dark? That's my point. <laughs> and 
All right, we spent we spent enough time on that. Um, so then, you know, uh, the military uh, agent um, Man of Steel uh, meets uh, Ben Affleck. Now, you know, wears uh, the cape and cowl. What I would say as a Batman fan is, we have a we have a general rule uh, on this podcast. Um, the rule is. Green Lantern was uh, no, I said it wrong. Ryan Reynolds was great as Green Lantern. It's not his fault he fought a clown. It's never the actor. And ninety nine percent of the podcast that we we rip, it's usually never the actor. Sometimes it's the actor. Recent movies, it's been the actor, but nine times out of ten, the performance is wonderful character is the question or the story is what comes into question in the opening of batman v superman you see the waynes get killed and it's become almost it's it's become like a like a general theme i think that i've seen the waynes killed i i, I want to say eight times and i just wonder if the poor waynes we know they die. And I just wonder what your thought is about constantly showing the Waynes being killed. Great question. And I simply point to Matt Reeves' brilliant The Batman. You do not see one more time the Waynes being killed. But every freaking scene is drenched in it. It's pervasive throughout. It's carried throughout. It's inescapable. Because that's but- what Batman is. You're exactly right. But it doesn't require another reshowing of that. And I think Spider-Man often suffered from the same problem with good old Uncle Ben. Um, and I thought Reeves did an extraordinary job in making it an important piece of that picture without having to show it. Okay. Um, what was your thought on the idea of them fighting and I like the idea, you know, they, they they didn't have to be best friends. I loved the animated uh, Batman Superman uh, adventure there. It was called the Batman Superman movie. I thought the twist when Bruce Wayne falls for Lois Lane, I thought that was genius. Um, I mean, there's, there's there's great moments that when 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 Batman goes to rescue Martha Kent, that's a pretty cool Batman scene. But them fighting because they they. they for, for no reason when when these two geniuses would just stop and talk for a second that they they would figure out that they're on the same side i i just i don't know i the, i i had trouble connecting to the whole thing and, uh, and I, I guess i'm a p1 for this stuff so like I, i'm 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 their target demo i thought as a fanboy i grew up in the 50s and the 60s uh, was in college in the 70s, still a fanboy. But when you look at what I grew up with, I grew up with World's Finest Comics. Mm-hmm. And it was Superman, Batman, and Robin mm-hmm. uh, in a partnership as the world's greatest superheroes. And when Batman was in trouble uh, or when Superman was in trouble, they stood in for each other, they stood up for each other, you know, whatever it took. That is the Batman and Superman that I grew up in. So um, there is a very common comic book trope uh, 
that has been used for generations. And that is, oh, two superheroes meet. There's a misunderstanding. They fight, which always makes a saleable cover. And then they resolve it. And uh, there's another one that has um, the superhero meeting a duplicate of himself and fighting right, a right, duplicate right. of himself. Sure. This is just common. Um, Comic book tropes. Yeah. I mean, it, it, it's yeah. just out there. So I understand that. But my Batman and my Superman that I grew up with were, were just supportive teammates and friends. So it's a different generation. You're happy for the character's success and you leave it at that? Sure. <laughs> Boy, I can't get you to stop telling stories and now I can't get a word out of you. Wow. Your silence is telling a thousand stories right now. <laughs> no, well, let me make this point, Seth. <laughs> The I don't want to dwell one, on this. I just I, I have to get your thought on on, yeah. on the major let, let, chunk let me, of the character's existence. Let, let me be clear about this point. The number one question I always get, whether it's interviews, Q and A, um, <clears throat> always comes up. Michael, who is the one true Batman? And it is the easiest question in the world to answer. Because the one true Batman is the one you were first exposed to when you were 8, 12, 16, or whatever. Whether it was in a comic book of a particular era, a cartoon, a movie, a video game, and that becomes your one true Batman. And that I accept completely. So my contention is there's plenty of room today for all the different interpretations of Batman, a Lego Batman, animated Batman, Batman meets Scooby-Doo, Adam West Batman, Tim Burton Batman, um, Chris Nolan Batman, Joel Schumacher Batman. You've got a plethora of Batman that, and one of them is your true Batman. And everyone has the right to that. And everyone should be respected for which one was is their one true Batman. And every and we're free to all discuss it and argue it back and forth, but I will never say, "Oh no, that's a false god." That um, this is what Batman is or must be, because I think that's the ultimate truth. Fair enough. Um, I want to tell you a story. Uh, my brother-in-law, uh, my wife's brother, is a paparazzi. I always tell people whenever I mention him on the podcast, he's one of the good ones. He's not one of the dicks. Uh, he's a he's a good guy, and he has a lot of friends. And you know, people tip him off. You know, PR people tip him off. He gets all kinds of great pictures because he is one of the good guys. Paparazzi can be assholes. He's not one of them. Okay, he's a paparazzi, and he was in Newark, New Jersey, uh, filming the taking pictures at the set of the Joker movie, the first Joker movie. Mm -hmm. And on that day, just a, a if, if if I have any of my facts incorrect and you know better, you correct me, that that's fair. This is how I know it. <laughs> Todd Phillips wanted to do something nice for the crew. And he had the George Barris 1966 Batmobile sent to the set 
uh, for the cast and crew to take pictures with as just a nice gesture. Very nice. Very cool. And so my brother-in-law, as a person there, got to take a bunch of pictures in Newark with the cast and crew of the Joker movie with the 1966 Batmobile. I had an idea. This is how my brain goes. Had an idea for a movie. Joaquin Phoenix plays Cesar Romero and goes through life and the drama is how they have this accomplished actor who's at the end of his career and they want him for this campy TV show. And the drama of the movie is his refusal and he doesn't want to do it and it kind of looks like that movie Hollywoodland. Mm-hmm which I thought was a great movie. Yeah, I did too. <laughs> and this idea that the Joker movie would have been the Cesar Romero story. And it could have ended with a superimposed Joaquin Phoenix with Adam West and Burt Ward. I thought that movie would have been gangbusters. And I said, oh my God, that's a movie. And when I talked about it on the podcast, people on my social media were like, oh my God, let's make that movie. (laughs) (laughs) All because, all because of that one photo. All because I saw that photo of him taking the thing. So number one, what do you think of my movie idea? Because you have the rights to all the Batman. Can we make the Cesar Romero story? Have your people call my people. We'll do lunch. All right. And by the way, Cesar Romero, he grew up in Asbury Park, New Jersey, uh, as did Danny DeVito. And Jack Nicholson was Neptune, New Jersey, and went to Manasquan High. We got a lot of Jersey Shore boys uh, showing up along the way here. I'm going to take this out of the podcast, but there's a really funny podcast. I don't know if you listen to podcasts, but um, there was a podcast that came out last year with uh, Bruce Springsteen and Barack Obama. (laughs) They (laughs) did. They did a podcast together. Uh-huh. <laughs> Only a Jersey person will appreciate this. They did a podcast together. And it's it, it's like eight episodes, but it's really cool. It's really interesting. Like the two of them have such different backgrounds and it's interesting. So the first episode, they talk about their upbringing. And Barack Obama is such a great speaker. And he tells his story about growing up on the south side of Chicago and how music was a big part of his life. And... You know, he was surrounded by gangs and he was surrounded by this. And but soul music was very important to him and blah, 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 blah. And I think listening to the podcast that Bruce Springsteen, this amazing musician, feels like he has to compete. So Bruce Springsteen says, well, you have to have soul to grow up on Route 9. And he says, (laughs) you know, in Jersey. You had to have, you know, and he's talking about New Jersey. And I'm like, by where the Roy Rogers was like. <laughs> and I know route nine. I know one, in, one and nine, one and nine. Right. I'm like, route nine. <laughs> like he's because t- he grew up in Freehold. I grew up in Marlboro. And I'm just like, you grew up in the suburbs. Like, what are you talking about? Soul? You you had nothing. That's my whole my whole uh, uh, bit. Anyway. Uh, I got. I have a great New Jersey story with um, Bruce Willis, 
okay. to, to cut through. He, he I had um, a DC comic book movie that I was developing, and he he was interested in starring in it. And uh, I met him for the first time at a lunch. And uh, as I go to sit down, he goes, you know, the only reason I even took this lunch was because they told me you were a Jersey boy. He said, is that really true? I said, yeah, it is. He goes, well, where are you from? Like he, like he didn't believe me. I said, well, I grew up at uh, exit 105. And with that, he smiled, came over to me, gave me a bear hug and he goes, only a real Jersey boy knows how to talk like that. There you go. I said, where are you from, Bruce? He said, exit two. I said, exit two? I said, the hell with you. That's like Delaware. That's Philadelphia. <laughs> <laughs> You're a Flyers fan. What are you talking about? <laughs> Seriously. All right. So uh, Cesar Romero movie, notwithstanding. Yes, sir. I'm leaving that in the podcast. I don't care what anybody says. I met him. He was at the he was at the premiere in 1989. 89? I met him, Burgess Meredith, that's awesome. uh, Frank Gorshin. Uh, it, it was it was a lot that's, of fun. That's awesome. Listen, I, I know what your journey was and I know what you were trying to create. Um, to me, I, I like that the, the Adam West show is a part of Batman's history. It is. And today, I look back because, at it fondly. Yeah, today, because there are many interpretations of Batman, that's not right. just that one. That was my problem. Right. That was the only interpretation. That's exactly right. I say that that is one of the best mechanisms to get young kids into Batman. And uh, just like the Batman Scooby-Doo kind of uh, animated stuff, um, watch the Batman series. I've got a, uh, a little grandson who um, every time I see him, the first thing he wants me to do is turn on the introduction to the uh, TV show so he can see sure. the animation and hear the na 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 na. Of course. Um, so I embrace it now. Of course. The um the James Tucker's uh Batman the Brave and the Bold. That's a great yeah. show. That's a that's, yeah. that's a silver age homage. Did I tell you about the time I finally met Adam West? No. Or do we not have time for that no, in this one? It's a podcast. We're already again we can go for three for three. Let's let's see. All right. Uh, real quickly, it was uh, San Diego Comic-Con one year. It was a big Batman panel. It was one of the big rooms, jam-packed, SRO. And at the last second, they announced a surprise guest. It was me and Jerry Robinson. And it was Adam West. And Adam West comes in, and I never met him before, uh, sits down. And there had been some history. At the time we announced our first Batman movie in 1980, Rather than talk to us, Adam went right to the press and started to talk about how uh, it's wrong to do a dark Batman and a serious Batman. Oh, and if there's going to be a movie, he needs to star in it. He can even play Uncle Batman. And, you know, he kind of peed on it and uh, got a lot of people at the studio really upset, yeah. by the way. Um, so I, I never really and, and originally I had been pushing that in the 89 movie, we get him to play Thomas Wayne, that that would be a nice little, you know, tip of the hat. But after that, nothing was going to happen. So now we're meeting at the first time at Comic-Con. And the first thing he does, he takes the microphone and he goes, I just want to say right up front that what I've learned is there's more than room, there's more room available for different interpretations of Batman. And it doesn't have to be one or the other. And I just want to say the work that Jerry Robinson did in creating it, the work Michael has done to the Batman franchise, you know, this is all valid. And, and 
with that, I say, may I have the microphone? <laughs> I said, every once in a while, I will let the eight or 10 year old Michael out. <laughs> I said, and I'd like to just take a moment to let that Michael have the microphone. And with that, I turned to the crowd. I turned to Adam and I go, oh my God, I am sitting next to the Batman of the swinging 60s. Holy shit. And with that, the crowd goes crowd crazy. Went bananas. <laughs> he stands up. I stand up. He gives me a bear hug. I hug him back. And all was right with the world. In the remaining moments, uh, tell me what was your role, if you had one? Uh, what was your impression? What did you make of Joker? Joker is one of the most phenomenal genius pieces of cinematic uh, artistry and craft that I've ever witnessed. Todd Phillips is a genius. He, he, he is absolutely on my list for that. That is filmmaking at its best. And I think we, we might have touched on this the last time. So this may be just me reiterating. At its best, cinema is a mirror to society. You hold that mirror up and force society to take a good look at themselves, warts and all. Biases, prejudices, whatever it might be. And the Joker movie does that. And it addresses the polarization of our country and planet. It addresses the lack of civility where people talk at each other today instead of with each other. It addresses all these issues, important, critical issues of mental health that politicians and society in general continue to ignore, assuming they're just going to go away without acknowledging there's a direct link to gun violence in that. And unless you tackle them both together, you're not going to get anywhere. That is incredible. And he did it in, in an amazing, creative way. Whereas a viewer, you're watching this and you never know for sure if the scene you're watching is really happening or it's just a delusion in the mind of the Joker. That is sheer brilliance. And um, it's, it's an amazing piece of work. Uh, do you know? So you've seen the script and you've seen part of Joker 2? No comment. Okay. It is going to be... <laughs> It, it is going to be bold. It is going to be daring. It is going to revolutionize what a comic book movie can be. And, right. uh, you know, I, 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 I'm not even supposed to say anything more than that. Okay. Okay. Um, the, the Batman. Um, same question. What was your connection to it? Uh, were you consulted? Were you, did you talk about it? Again, the interesting part about it was they hadn't said that there was no more Affleck. This was a new thing. Now there's another Batman movie coming out, but this guy's still existing. It's in different universes. Whatever. It's fine. It I'll, all I'll, works. I'll say two things about it. We live in a, in a wonderful world where we, ha we have more Batman than we know what to do with. Um, now we have this movie. I went back into my files and found going back, I think it was 31 or 33 years ago, um, letters I sent pleading the case that what we now need to do is show Batman as the world's greatest detective with the accent off the explosions, off the gimmicks, and, 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 and let the world see him as that. So it took me like 33 years to wait for it but it was worth the wait. Um, and it, it, it was done under um, COVID conditions. 
yeah. at, at the time. It was the first time um, I never uh, got to a set. Mm -hmm. um, I had nothing to do with that. That was all Matt Reeves. And um, I had no communication with him even about it. Um, that, that was all his doing. And uh, all I could do was, you know, sit back and cross my fingers and, and, and watch this, what I, what I feel was a magnificent piece of work uh take place there's already going to be a, a second one does that universe go on while there's another universe going on like how many live action batman should there be what's the limit like uh, how how should the fan digest this we've come a long way since tim burton you know i love this idea of separate universes i love the idea of having todd phillips be able to do a joker movie or movies I love the idea of Robert uh, Pattinson and uh, and Matt Reeves being able to do, you know, every filmmaker typically gets two or three. Um, I, I, I love seeing them. I'm watching. I can watch the Dark Knight evolve. I can watch the Batmobile evolve. That I mean, that, that's a really cool thing for me. Uh, if uh, Phil Lord and Chris Miller were to, uh, to to want to do a Batman Lego or a Batman animated trilogy, or Bruce Tim wanted to do something theatrical. I said, there's room for everybody if they have a passion for it and a vision for it. Um, and these things can stand alone. I, I think we've got enough of a sophisticated audience and enough platforms now between theaters and streaming and uh, home video and television and you know, th there there are so many ways to present the material now. Um, I, I think there there is a lot of room for that. If you have a night free, which you never do because you seem to be a very hardworking person. But if you have a night free and you can watch anything, you're probably watching uh, the 1989 Tim Burton Batman. If I'm or guessing the, correctly. Or Superman 2 okay. with Christopher Reeve. Or the complete collection of the george reeves adventures of superman oh, there you go. uh tv series um i, I sat them. down i i sat with my six-year-old granddaughter and we watched every episode of walt disney zorro in nice. black and white from when i was a kid and nice. explained to her how zorro influenced the creation of batman um, these are the things I love. I love the, this, this is what gave me my sense of wonder as a little boy that I like to believe I've never lost. And, um, and that is the magic of comic books and the magic of superheroes. Um, I love and have lo always loved comic books and superheroes. I love DC. I love Marvel. I love all of it. And, and I personally, I can't understand the fractions that have taken place where it's like, you know, team sports, one against the other. I loved it all. I collected and read all of it. And uh, and, and it's been uh, it's been a wonderful, wonderful, amazing journey for me, um, which I try to share, by the way, uh, on Instagram and Facebook. Uh, if you want to come aboard, you'll find me there. And I, I have behind the scenes photos and and commentary. Great. Uh, stuff great from when follow. I was a kid. It's so much fun, you know. Stuff, stuff that a lot, just a lot of fun stuff uh, to share with everybody. And my ground rules are no offensive language, and respect 
everybody for whoever their individual true Batman is. That's my only two ground rules. If you want to come on Instagram or Facebook, you have an open invite to this show. Um, this show was created for people like you. Uh, so um, just let's stay in touch. And when the Broadway show's ready or the next great project is coming, um, let's just let's keep doing this because um, I'm having a I'm having the best time. <laughs> this podcast so is super fun anyway, but man, come back as often as you can. So am I, and uh, it's a privilege, it's an honor, and uh, I think we need to get together for some Jersey pizza uh, along go. the way. Now we're talking. Then and crispy. Then and crispy. <laughs> Take care, Seth. Michael Uslin, right here on the Hall of Justice podcast. So, of the two episodes, we covered every Batman film. So if you have liked Batman, Batman Returns, Batman Forever, Batman and Robin, Batman Begins, The Dark Knight, The Dark Knight Rises, Batman v Superman, Dawn of Justice. We threw in Batman the Animated Series, we threw in the Joker movie, and we closed with The Batman. This man is a treasure trove of information. And if you're going out to Comic-Con, make sure you go see his panels follow him on either Facebook or Instagram and check out all of his appearances. Thanks for listening. We will see you next week. Believe it or not, I'm walking on